0: Hey, I'm Pastor Chris, and the teaching or conversation that you're about to hear is from the student ministry at Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church. If you have any questions or you'd like to get into contact with us, please visit us on our website at cedarcrest.church forward slash students. Now I pray that God would use this resource to richly bless you in your walk with Him. What's up, guys? If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Ben Walters. Coming at you with, hopefully, Lord willing, the final virtual youth group lesson. Tonight we finish the book of James and we'll be in chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. It's intriguing to me that when we're born, we enter this world knowing how to do almost nothing. Some things are instinctual or unconscious, but many, many things must be learned. And it's our parents, family, church family, etc., who teach us how to do these things, If you left child-rearing to children, you'd have chaos. And I know that, having a six-month-old. The point is, the Lord has made the involvement of other people in our lives critical for our well-being. Yes, He ultimately saves a person and sustains them to the finish line. All credit, most fundamentally, belongs to God. And yes, Acts 17, 24, 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. But, in his wisdom, he has decided to work his purposes through human agents, especially the church, such that we are indispensable for his kingdom-forwarding mission. He doesn't need us, but he has willed to use us in this way, and we'll see that tonight. Honestly, sometimes I wish it wasn't that way, and that God would just... Snap his fingers, save his people, end all suffering, and usher in paradise. But God has a better plan, one where we, if we are willing, get to participate in this soul thrilling work and store up forever treasure in heaven in return. Think for a moment of the people in your own life who have spoken the truth to you and who have helped you stay walking with Jesus. Do you see their names flash in your head? Do you see their faces before your eyes? Where would you be if it were not for these people? Where would you be without all the sermons that you have heard? A pastor that I follow on Twitter, Matt Smethurst, tweeted, I don't remember 99% of the meals I've eaten, but they've kept me alive. God uses faithful, forgettable sermons to beautify His bride. Where would any of us be if it were not for the centuries of faithful Christians who passed the gospel down to us? We are indebted. To millions of spirit-empowered people whom we've never known and never seen for the spiritual heritage we have. And we have a fortune. And the coming generations depend on us not to squander this wealth. We have to pass it down with our lives and our lips. If James were to put a little subheading on the last two verses of this letter, I wonder if he would entitle it, Wanderers and Search Parties. Let's pray. Oh Father, as we look into your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would give our hearts the ability, the grace to receive what you're saying. Lord, change us, challenge us. Show us more of you. And Father, be glorified in it all. We submit this to you in Jesus name. Amen. All right, let's jump into the text. James 5:19 through 20. It says, "My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. When I first read that and began preparing, I was like, what, what all can we really glean from these two short verses? And as often happens with the Word of God, I was surprised that there's really a lot. So let's break it down. Interestingly, notice who James' audience is in these verses. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you. So his focus here is Christians. Using the familial term brother, James addresses all men and women who make up the family of God, and then says, If anyone among you does this. And what scenario is he addressing children of God about? Look at the text. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So he's saying it is possible for authentic Christians, you, me, another brother or sister in Christ, to slip into a spiritual state where they have bought into falsehoods, are living aimlessly, and have lost their way. Maybe they think to themselves, crossing this boundary with my girlfriend or boyfriend, that'll make me happy, that's something worth living for. Flaunting my beauty on TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat and living for the validation from other people, that'll satisfy me, so I should devote myself to that. Drinking, doing drugs, partying, social acceptance that comes from that, that's what's worth living for. Or I ought to live for my family, my friends, my money, my fitness, my academic success, athletic achievement, music, traveling, because these are what can fulfill me." Authentic Christians can buy into these lies and become deluded by them. So there is a truth that you can wander from, and there are lies that you can get lost in. I think that's part of what James is telling us here. He's addressing the reality that we're prone to wander, and then he adds to the scenario. What does he say? If anyone among you wanders from the truth, And someone brings him back. So James assumes that Christians who aren't wandering will go on a recon mission to bring those who are back. We don't stand idly by as a brother wanders off, unaffected by the sight. We ache. And so we go out to try to bring them back. James then speaks to the brother on the rescue mission and says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. Now, there's some potential to come away from that confused. Wasn't James just addressing Christians? And if anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 So, why does he now equate wanderers... With sinners, why not say, wayward saints? And he speaks of one's soul dying. Isn't that the fate of only those who don't put their faith in Jesus? Not those who merely wander? All good questions. Now, it's important to remember when studying James that it reads a lot like wisdom literature, such as Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. And in that style, sometimes the speaker will say intentionally ambiguous open-ended things to convey multiple ideas or a complexity of thought. Because James, and this is my best stab at it, and I think there's a couple things we can glean from it, because James just addressed brothers in verse 19, I believe when he says sinners, he is still primarily referring to Christians, the ones who have temporarily forgotten who they are, have stripped down out of the outfit of Christ-like living, and are walking naked in worldliness while suppressing the internal reality of their adoption. I believe this logic follows because you can't wander away from the truth unless you've at some point had the truth, or at least been in proximity to it. Those who are born again into the family of God can't be unborn again. As a counter-argument, though, if Chris and I were having a friendly dialogue about this, perhaps he would say, but Ben, remember Hebrews 6, 4-6, which says, "...for it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt." And in that context, Hebrews 6, fallen away means a sustained, committed rejection of Christ and a departure from Christian community. So depending on how the wandering soul responds to the rescue attempts, I think we can have an idea of that person's spiritual state. The fact remains though that James is a little ambiguous here because we know Christians' souls have already been saved from death. So James may have unbelievers in mind here too. Another possible um, thing that we can glean from that is, we know the wages of sin is death. And even if you're saved, when we sin, there is a, a necrosis of sorts, a decay that sets in. There are consequences for sin. Our souls will not die the second death. We will not go to hell, hallelujah. But when we sin, a death of sorts sets in. Not one that Jesus can't redeem you from, not one that He can't resurrect and bring back to life, but death results from sin. So perhaps it has that sense here. It should be noted too that the Bible holds out little comfort to those who claimed to believe in Christ in the past, but now wandered and have openly and stubbornly rejected Jesus. At best, wandering will assassinate any assurance you had before God, And at worst, it'll show on Judgment Day that you were never saved. So I think from this passage we can see there's a type of wandering Christians can do that does not undo their salvation. And there is a type of wandering people who seemed like Christians can do that shows that they aren't saved. And James, in this passage, is emphasizing the role of those search party believers who go out to bring both wandering saints and wandering sinners to Christ. And when wandering souls come to Christ, whether back to Him or to Him for the first time, their sins are covered, meaning paid for, done away with, cancelled, with Christ taking the punishment for them instead. Alright, so having walked through the passage, I want to draw out some applications from it that I think we'll find helpful. Firstly, we are all prone to wander. James assumes this. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders, the strongest believer you know is susceptible to wandering. Staying is difficult. Do not mistake Though, how difficult it is not to wander for evidence against Christianity's truthfulness. It's easy to think that. It strokes our ego and validates our vanity to say, if this were really true, it wouldn't be so hard or counternatural. That faulty logic forgets that we are not in peacetime. We are at war every day, Ephesians 6. The devil will give your soul some false peace in exchange for your kingdom effectiveness and or eternal destiny. Willful wanderers are not conflicted inside because they are temporarily numb to the fire to come. We are all prone to wander. The human's heart, the human heart's default is not closeness with God purity of life and commitment to church community. Its natural gravity is away from God towards impurity and towards isolation from God's people. Intentional, concentrated, daily effort, fueled by reliance on the Spirit, is required to do the opposite of wandering, staying with Jesus. All it takes to wander is to do nothing. Inaction is motion away from Jesus. Why? Because this life is a deceptively fast-moving river and living the Christian life is swimming upstream. So how do we stay? Romans 12.2 says, do not, con- do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Resist the pressure of this world. Don't let it mold you. Renew your mind daily, so instead of being conformed, you'll be transformed. Now that's easy to say, but what does that really mean? How do you really do it? To do that, we have to gaze upon God through the means He has given us, His Word. I love what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. Paul wrote, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another you become like the things you behold the things you obsess over will shape you whether that's God which will shape you wonderfully and and take you from one degree of glory to another or whether it's dead things or things that just are anything not God it shapes you beholding is becoming so behold God how else? Hebrews 10, 24-25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. So we stay others-oriented. We think, how do we stir up other people to love and good works? And then that keeps in the forefront of our minds how our own wandering would hurt our family in Christ, and how else we stay meeting together. So I call you to wake up and to realize how easy it is to go astray, and to cry out to God for help and stay. Secondly, there is absolute truth that can anchor you, or from which you can wander. Look at the text, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, invisible God-instituted principles govern reality, and contradictions of this are falsehoods. I could sit back and I could cynically say, I in my 27 years of wisdom surely know what's right and wrong, and can judge for myself ...and do what I please without any immediate consequences and probably no long-term consequences. That's falsehood. Or I can humble myself and say, God is the ancient, eternal, wise one. And my lifespan has been but a tiny blip on the timeline. He determines truth and falsehood. And so I will listen to Him. We are not left to ourselves to figure out what the truth is... Everything God says will happen. Truth is fixed. The repercussions of contradicting it may not be immediate, but they are definite. So know that there is truth, and it will anchor you through this turbulent life. The truth is in the Scriptures. And the truth isn't just some assortment of facts. Profoundly enough, and I'm sure James had this in mind, since we believe he was the brother of Jesus, though he humbly does not introduce himself as that, the truth is a person. It's Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So James says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, also known as Jesus Christ, Jesus is the truth that the human heart craves. He is the person whose companionship you can feel and whose presence can thrill your soul even though we can't see Him physically yet. Don't wander from the truth. Don't wander from Him. He is better than the lies. Alright, third application from this text. We are our brother's keeper and we need to confront those who wander. Adam and Eve's son Cain was confronted by God after murdering his brother Abel and tried to play dumb saying those famous words, am I my brother's keeper? Firstly, how do you think you're going to fool God? Secondly, you're one of four people, now three, on planet earth. Okay, there's probably some sisters involved because Cain gets married to somebody, but if not you, who Cain? (laughs) You are your brother's keeper. James says, my brother's If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, he is assuming Christians bring each other back. I can't tell you how many times I felt like I was on the ledge, peering down and contemplating spiritual suicide. and Somebody loved me enough to pull me back. Maybe even unknowingly, through a sermon, a conversation, a text, a letter, We are marked by our love for each other. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love does not complacently watch a brother wander away. This life often feels like you're walking down a foggy, dimly lit road at midnight on a cloudy winter evening. We need to come alongside each other when it gets dark and shine our flashlights to help each other keep walking on the straight and narrow road. Interestingly, in 1 John 3:12 and 14, John juxtaposes Cain's attitude with lovelessness. John says, "We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. We know that we have passed out of death into life" Because we love the brothers. Or Galatians 6.1 gives us another command in this same vein. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgressions, otherwise known as wandering, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But I'm scared I'll upset them or I'll fracture our relationship. No! You are a complicit Cain if you do that, letting sin murder your brother. So we beg God for strength, and then we push through the awkwardness of confrontation out of love. When I was in ninth grade and I was at Emmaus High School, I kept hearing a friend of mine who came to this youth group uh, cursing and saying perverted things. And I was burdened. God burdened me in my heart to confront him about it. So I wrote down James one twenty six for him on a, on a post-it note. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And praise the Lord, he repented, our bond as Christian brothers strengthened, and he walks with God to this day. In 11th grade, I had another friend um, who I confronted. He went to another BFC church, and he was using foul language, and he was also sleeping with his girlfriend. And I was totally nervous that he would reject me. To my shock, though, as I confronted him about it, God had been working in his heart and convicting him, and my coming to him confirmed it to his conscience. He repented. He's actually now married to that young lady, and he began following the Lord. Praise God. One other example. And uh, those two were people that I think may have been believers already. This individual was not. In 2015, uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, Pop Pop, he had bone cancer, and he didn't have long to live. And I knew that he was not walking with the Lord, and I wanted to say something. Um, One of the elders here, Rick Whitmire, encouraged me to write a letter, and so I did. And when we sat down to speak about it, uh, I couldn't even get a word out. I just began weeping out of anguish for his soul. And I think that was, that was all to the glory of God because it wasn't because of anything I said. Um, it was the Spirit's work. To my amazement, he interrupted my sobbing with words I had never heard my hardened, cynical, bitter grandfather say about God. He said, Benny, I believe in God and I believe in Christ. And I know God saved my pop-pop soul from death, like James is talking about. And I know God covered his sins in Christ. God did the work ultimately, but it can be said of us, if we are willing to confront and go out after wandering people, Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And when you do that, it'll be so evident to you that it's God who's ultimately doing the work that you'll give Him all the praise for it. So who do you need to confront to make it personal? Who is God laying on your heart that is wandering? And God may want to use you to bring them back. Do it. God will blow your mind if you obey. And He'll strengthen your faith. Do it. It's interesting how James says, when we do this, we will cover a multitude of sins. You see that at the end of verse 20. Does that phrase remind you of anywhere else in the Bible? It made me think of 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I think James means that when we do confront a wandering friend, we need to do it lovingly, to have any hope of helping them return to the truth, to return to Jesus. We can make the mistake of being so zealous to bring someone back to the truth that we engage them in a bristly, off-putting, unloving way. Do not passive-aggressively post vague statuses or snipe people on social media with oddly specific but indirect scriptural rebukes. You need to let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. But pray for wisdom on how to lovingly, tactfully confront them. And for our final point of application, it's this. Jesus searches for the wandering, Like the shepherd in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, Jesus leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Luke 19:10, Jesus said, "For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did He come to earth to find lost people like you, like me and like everybody around us? And God wants us to participate in this mission by gathering the search party and going out after wanderers. I wonder if I can, may I give you, a your soul rather, a cold, refreshing glass of ice water. It's this. Jesus loves you. And unspeakably so. You were hopelessly lost. You were sin-sane and spiritually dead. And Jesus sought you Bought you, caught you, wrought faith in you, and taught you the way of salvation. He died for you, and in so doing, absorbed the eternal fires of hell you had earned from a just God for your sin. He was buried as all dead men are, but very unlike all other dead men, he came back to life and proved that what he did was enough to rescue all who believe in him from death. And the second death, hell. That's for you, that's for me. Believer who has been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, as a free gift of God's grace alone, you are found. You are saved. So don't wander from your loving Lord. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so spend your life seeking out your brothers and sisters in Christ if they are wandering or those who don't yet know him that you see wandering. And if you know that you have been wandering your whole life and it's become clear to you as you've watched this, turn to Jesus in prayer now while you still can. Repent of your sins trust in him. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Let's close in prayer.